Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. We're going to look today at some of the amazing things that come out of the, what I call, key points or training out of Colossians. But before we do that, last week, um, I can't say that I've ever been in a church where we've shown the testimony from an ex-Satanist, but we looked at the 37-minute video from John Ramirez, um, and it was very telling. We've had several conference calls this week with our intercessory group as well as our men, kingdom men's group, and I specifically asked them to give me feedback on the video from John Ramirez. For those that may not be familiar with him, um, he was the, an ex-Satanist who had a vision. He, he got deep into the occult, I mean, very high level in the occult, some really uh, ugly and wicked things from his testimony. But he had a vision of hell. God visited him. He was miraculously saved. Um, and then, of course, the enemy wanted to silence him. He was pretty high level in the occult. But he's now um, brought revelation to some of the strategies of the enemy. And I think it's worth some of the things. So I want to just cover some of the questions that were directed to me, some of the insights that came from several people who watched the, the video. First of all, uh, one of the observations was we face a very strategic enemy, and um, he is very disciplined in what he does. And that strategic plan, if you saw when Ramirez, who really he, he grew up in the Bronx and a uh, pretty tough area, both from a you know, crime-ridden place, but the occult is very prevalent there, at least as it was in that time. And so, not only is he the enemy strategic, but there's a whole lot of generational witchcraft, certainly was in his case. But one of the things that stood out to me and several others is how when, even when Ramirez was contracted, someone asked the question, what do you mean he was contracted? Um, we've seen this in many of the countries we've been in when we come against the occult, whether that's San La Muerte, the, the cult of death, or whether it's Macumba, whether in Mozambique, Brazil, uh, and others, voodoo, that there's times when certain, if you've read my book, you'll see one of the testimonies we give on that one is um, if someone wants to place a curse on them, they'll go to the, an occult spiritist, exchange some money or agreement, and a, and a curse will be placed upon them. Well, in this contract, which is what um, John Ramirez was referring to, there was a particular Christian woman that uh, someone wanted to have been taken care of, quote-unquote. So he said he'll kill her. Um, and when he found out he was a Christian, he said, I'll do it for free. And he worked all of his, quote, craft, uh, blood sacrifices, spent time mustering up his and conjuring up his power source and got to the place where he was unable to touch this woman. And even in his interchange with high levels of darkness, uh, demon principalities, says we're not authorized. We can't touch her. And that to me, when you read several of the books, I'm going to probably share something uh, in a little bit out of uh, Charles Kraft's book, Defeating Dark Angels, which I would uh, if you're looking for resources, I have several of these books. After I started uh, delving into deliverance ministry, I just started going into all these uh, forerunners. Many of them are with the Lord now. Another one that I'm going to read from tonight is Derek Prince's book, They Shall Expel Demons. 
I'm going to use one of Derek's first uh, examples of when he uh, became aware of power and authority. So, one of the things we learn from this as a Spirit-filled Christian, someone who's walking, I, mean, I use the term under the Lordship of Christ. There's many that want salvation, but want those who have made Him the Lord, because if He's not Lord at all, of all, He's not Lord at all. And so, but those who are walking under His Lordship, that promise of the Psalm 91 and all the other promises are our armor and our protection. And in fact, we've had cases where um, those who are demonized will say, we don't like to put curses on Spirit-filled Christians because it comes back on us. And so, um, so that was encouraging when you hear that, that uh, in fact, the, during one of the visits to one of the occult shops where they had all the statues and all the other paraphernalia in the Bronx, the photographer was nervous when uh, John Ramirez was explaining to him what was going on, and he said, no, they can't touch us. And so, I think that will make us feel very comfortable, the fact that we have power and authority, which is consistent with Scripture. We've looked at that out of Luke chapter 10. I, when the 72 come back from their mission trip, the first thing they declare to Jesus is, we're amazed that even the demons are subject to us when we use your name. And Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan falling from the sky, and he said that I have given you power and authority over all the enemy. He can't harm you. So that is consistent with Scripture and consistent with the experiential reports. Some of the other things that were interesting, as uh, Ramirez was in pursuit of greater and greater darkness, the, the doors that opened. This, uh, it was crazy, kind of wild, this voodoo necklace, part of Santeria Falls, and whether it showed up, fell from the sky, I don't know, but it was associated. So I've seen this in Africa when I was preaching with Heidi Baker and Roland uh, in the in the in the bush in Mutarara, we saw them with their amulets and everything. I preached a sermon. They came and they surrendered much of their, their amulets to the altar. And so, we know that those things carry some power, attachment. And so, the other um, thing that was interesting, at least it was disturbing or concerning to me, is the accusation that Ramirez makes. It says, he used to go to satanic church the demon church, from 7 p.m. at night until 5 a.m. in the morning to pray. And that he's concerned that it's hard to even get Christians to pray for one hour or even to come to a prayer meeting. And so that ought to make us um, at least motivated to stand up in this fight. He also said that they often channeled spirits for suicide, prostitution. He would go into the ICU units and pray for death over people. So this... Um, this level of darkness and this, what I will call, strategic plans of the enemy to recruit. He was a recruit for the devil. Animal sacrifice was part of their process. And so, a lot of these things are pretty raw and disturbing, but we need to know the strategy of the enemy if we're going to, uh, you know, anytime you're in a military strategy, when I was uh, with, in the submarine service, we had to understand sonar and the strategies of the enemy in order to be able to counter what he was doing. And so, we also think what we saw when you look at graffiti, he went and he described some of the demonic graffiti that we might innocently think of or say, well, isn't that interesting how they, they drew that on the wall? But they actually had occult messages in them. He also held up what looked like um, part of the, 
um, enemy's plan. There was a book of prayers in one of the occult shops. He says, oh, no, those are demon prayers. They're masquerading. They don't really have, they speak a little bit about God, but they don't really have anything to do with that. Then he spoke of sickness. He would pray for people to lose their mind, to have a bipolar spirit. And the other thing was, again, goes along with the power and authority. When Nicky Cruz came into his neighborhood, he wanted to curse this whole group that came with him. But as he tried, there was a wall of fire in the spirit pushing him back, unable. There was like a hedge of protection, and they were unable to do anything with that. That is, again, very encouraging, I think, to us as we stand under the power and the authority of the Word. But he did say, look, one of the concerns is the satanic organization, they are very organized, and they seem to be much more organized than the church. He also struggled with some things where there was great amount of fear, um, but all of that, even when he came out of the occult, he had to battle through it, and uh, praise God for the redeeming grace of God to set him free. So, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go ahead and, and uh, look that one up. If you have, um, some of the folks were saying it was disturbing, but at the same time it was revealing. And sometimes I think we need to understand some of the strategy that the enemy has for us. Well, let me um, encourage us now. I want to just pull out some highlights. Um, I pray that you're really doing the reading, doing the module reading, and doing the um, the reading of the Scriptures, and looking for what are some of the, what are key learning points specifically. Remember we said, once we understand how big Christ is and who we are in Christ, that authority is our grounding. Because we don't come against principalities, and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. Uh, we, we, we come against principalities and powers. And there's a strategy for doing that. I think I said once before that uh, in Certainly we see this in Luke's gospel, but Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. We saw that in Luke 10. And uh, so there were two in agreement. It's if two will agree is touching, it shall be done for them. Uh, one can put a thousand to flight, two can put ten thousand to flight. So something about uh, power and agreement and unity. Um, we see this. So when, uh, when we look at the book of Colossians, we'll see that there's power that Paul speaks of, both identity in Christ and also authority over principalities and powers. So let me just highlight, I went through, I spent about two hours yesterday in just the first couple of chapters and, uh, of Colossians. First of all, Colossians, the, the church at Colossa was 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was actually a church plant off of the city of Ephesus that was, uh, that's in modern-day Turkey. It's east of, uh, east of Ephesus. Uh, it was founded by Ephras. He was a co-prisoner with Paul. We see that in the book of Philemon in uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Um, it's short-term, Ephras is short-term for the, the name Aphroditus. Uh, we also see his name listed in Philippians 2.25 and Philippians 4.18. He was an evangelist. We see that in Colossians 4. Um, so, we know that that church was a church plant, and Paul does a lot of instructional, um, foundational teaching to the church at Colossus. And so let me just pull out what I thought was some really wonderful highlights that I love. I, something about diving deep in the Scriptures. In verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of Colossus, faith and love are sourced from confident hope. That just kind of leaped out at me in the New Living Translation. Faith and hope are sourced from confident hope of what God has reserved 
for you in heaven. Basically, you have a reservation in heaven. There's a reservation for you in heaven. And he says the fruit now has gone all over the world of changed lives. So the fruit demonstrated is the lives that are being changed. And I, he says this, you heard and you understood or knew. King James says knew. You heard and you understand or knew God's wonderful grace. See, there's a difference between hearing, understanding, and knowing the grace of God. And it's because of that that they're sourced faith and hope. Says, he says that he prays then that you'll continue in knowledge and all wisdom because there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He lists all three of those there. And then in verse 10 he says, then, as a result of all that, he says, then, the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and continue to produce good fruit. All the while, growing to learn and to know God better and better. Isn't that the journey we're all on? Is to know Him better and better. And that is what Paul's encouraging there. Then he says in verse 11, be strengthened with His power so that you have endurance and patience. Endurance and patience. God, we thank You for that endurance and patience. Verse 12 is just one that um, again, as a powerful tribute to the Father enables us, the Father enables us to be filled, and then he goes, so that, that enablement, in other words, that, that, that word enablement means the capacity to or providing for, but it still requires us to walk in and make choices. Then he goes on, he says, he's rescued us and transferred us. I like what King James says, translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His dear Son. So we have been translated. It's like, beam me up, Scotty. Thank you, Jesus, that you have translated us from this dark place. In uh, verses 15 through 20, probably one of the most powerful set of Scriptures about the supremacy of Christ. It goes on, it says, Christ is supreme. His blood has made peace and reconciled us. And now he finishes that by saying, now, you who were once separated with all your evil stuff and thoughts and actions, you're now holy and you're blameless and you're without a single fault. That's pretty powerful. You are now faultless because of the blood and how he sees you through the blood. He has brought us into that place of being free in such a holy and blameless way. Man, that is big. My, your head can hardly get around that one. It's just like amazing. In chapter 2, <clears throat> he reveals that God had a mysterious plan, and it was in Christ, and it was in Him that lie all the hidden treasures, all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He warns about, watch out for well-crafted deceits. That faith in Christ will keep you strong, but watch out. Live as you should. You received Christ, now walk in Him. And let your roots go down and be built into Him. But be careful, beware. He warns again in verse 8 of chapter 2. Beware of being captured by empty philosophies. Man, the world is just loaded with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense from human thinking. This is humanism. And spiritual powers that come from this world. Sounds like Paul in Timothy. And so we see that this encouragement is walk this out, but be careful. 
You're now complete in your union with Christ. He is the head of every ruler, principality, and power. Then he challenges, look, forget about the circumcision of the flesh. This is about circumcision of the Spirit in verse 11. That you've been baptized and raised to Him. You're, no, you're now dead to sin. All your trespasses have been forgiven and you're quickened together. Sounds like the similar scripture in Romans 8.11 where he says, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and quickens your mortal body. Same word. Makes you alive. And so we see that this desire for us to be quickened, to be made alive. Verse 15, here's a point for spiritual warfare for tonight. He spoiled, literally means disarmed, principalities and powers and spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly when he hung on a cross. That's powerful spiritual warfare language right there. So because of his... um, Releasing in us this revelation of the deep roots of His love and authority, we now have walking in principality power over this. We have the same power and authority over these dark places. Because there's no, he says in verse 16, right after he says, there is no condemning or judgment. And don't let anybody judge you. This is interesting. He says, don't let anybody judge you about food or drink, certain holy days, new moons or Sabbaths, bodily discipline and denial. They don't really help at all in the conquering of evil human desires. There's disciplines, obviously, and we believe in fasting and all that. But what he's saying is, don't let anybody judge you about all these uh, traditions. Christ is the, is the fulfillment of the foreshadow of all those things of their past. And so, it's really being led by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3 of Colossians, he says, set your sights on the reality of heaven. Think about heaven. I don't know how many times a day you think about heaven. That's not something that we who are, you know, in this currently standing here on earth, even though we're seated in the heavenly realms, he says, look, I'd like you to spend some time thinking about your heavenly realm because that'll help you in verse 5. Chapter 3 says, put to death the sinful things, earthly things that lurk within you. I like that word. There's this stuff that the sinful nature of man that needs to be nailed to the cross every day. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Since God, verse 12, he says, since God chose you to be a holy people, clothe yourselves. Not only clothe yourselves, then he says in verse 13, he says, make allowances for everyone else's faults. Have you done that today? (laughs) Did you make allowances for somebody else's faults? Then he does uh, this thing uh, like Paul does in many of his writings In verse 18 and 19, he speaks about wives, husbands, and children in that whole order of the family. And he finishes chapter 3 and verse 23 with, work hard as everything you do unto the Lord, because in your inheritance, do no wrong, or you'll get some payback from your wrong. In chapter 4, he culminates this whole thing with, devote yourselves to prayer and an alert mind and a thankful heart. Then he says what he does, it's almost like how Paul goes about in evangelism, pray for many opportunities that he makes a clear delivery of the message. He says, live wisely among non-believers, make the most of every opportunity, and let your conversation be gracious and attractive. What a powerful book. I encourage you to really meditate on that. I think I'm going to preach on some of that this weekend. And so, I want to encourage us to 
dig deeply into this. Our reading assignment for next week is the first book of Timothy. So now we've read the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and we'll do Timothy, the first book of Timothy. That'll be our completion for this week, and then we'll pick up from that. All right, I want to transform, uh, trans, uh, translate, just translate a little bit this morning, uh, this evening, into uh, some of the modules that uh, we've been looking at from, a, from the ministry training manual. We are through the, the five first modules, which is both protocol and the salvation model, which we did last week. And I want to pick up and speak about the biblical basis for healing and deliverance. This is in module six. Those who have the book, it's, it's 6-1 in your handout there. Um, I want us to, this is an area where, depending on where I go in the earth, there's, um, I get it. If it's not in the book, you have every reason to challenge it. But if it's in the book, we have every reason to be challenged to fulfill what's in the book, right? And so, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God uses it to equip us and train us. So, if it's in the book, biblically, what's the basis? And I want to I look at it. I've, give, I've given tons of Scripture here about the biblical basis of healing. Years ago, I was in a church. They didn't, they didn't incorporate or believe in healing, and they certainly didn't believe in deliverance either. And so, I'm not being critical of any denomination or, or church groups that are not there because all of us are on a journey, uh, but we do have the responsibility to preach what's in the gospel here. So, let's look at that in 6.1. Healing the sick, is up top of the page there of 6.1 in that module. Healing the sick physically and from torment was part of the Great Commission from Jesus. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you certainly were convicted, or at least I shared my conviction after reading Mark chapter 16 of the Great Commission, which is not the great suggestion. It's commanded, and you'll notice one of the first things it is, is he, he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all men, and those who believe will be saved, those who reject will not be saved. And it says, cast out demons. These are the signs of those that believe. Cast out demons in my name. Be able to handle deadly things without harm. They speak with new languages. They'll be able to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And it finishes that chapter 16 with, then the Lord worked with them or went with them verifying that the message was true. He co-labored with them in this ministry. So, we use that in the top. We certainly know from uh, Jesus' account with John the Baptist, when John was in prison, probably about to be beheaded and knew it, or was going to be killed by Herod, he sent two of his apostles, his disciples, to go find out from Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus uses the statement in Luke that, go tell John what you see. He heals the sick, he casts out demons, he raises the, the dead, the blind see. It was the the, the actions that validated he was Messiah, proof of his authority in the earth. So when you look at the note there, the comments in this section of the biblical basis of ministry of deliverance and healing, you'll see that um, the question that is answered by Jesus in that Luke 7.21, I just, uh, just referenced that. Once you turn the page on 6.2, it says, that he called his 12 disciples together. This is in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. He calls the 12 together, and it says he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. So they departed and went to towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. 
Certainly sounds like a commission. So, and then we look at in Luke chapter 10, it's not just the 12. Some will say, well, that's the apostles, and this whole thing stopped with the apostles. That is not true. In the book of Acts, we see it over and over again, and then we see it here in Luke's gospel chapter 10. Jesus calls together 72, sends them out two by two, and they come back with the same story of deliverance. I won't spend a lot of time, but in the middle of that page under, the, under atonement, where Jesus, in His atonement for us, Atonement, by the way, means that's a making at one or a process of bringing those things that were estranged into unity. So it's a oneness. His atonement in, the, in that laid down sacrifice He did for us comes salvation, healing, and deliverance. Turn to page 6.3. It says in that passage um, about mid-page, Matthew 8.16 and 17 when evening came, there's loads of scriptures here of this, but it says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out spirits with a word, healed the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and he carried our diseases. We notice that Peter also quoted in 1 Peter 2.24, he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might have life for righteousness and might live in righteousness. Why? Whose stripes we are and were healed. 1 Peter 2.24. In Christ's atonement, God provided for many blessings for the world. His death and resurrection were a complete triumph over Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And that atonement frees us from every bondage of Satan, sickness, disease, torment, Unbelief. Page 6-4, under the freedom from that bondage, we, we see that, as was mentioned in Colossians 1-12, that the Father has enabled us to be partakers of this inheritance. Well, what is that inheritance? It's freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Well, you see where Jesus continues to go and heals the sick beyond question there and a, it says, beyond question, healing the sick, sick was a central part of the ministry of Christ. He's mentioned specifically healing the brokenhearted. Remember when Jesus comes and opens the scroll in the book of Isaiah, chapter, uh, in Luke 4, and representing Isaiah 61. It says, he opens that, and it says, healing the brokenhearted, deliverance of the captives, recovery of the sight of the blind, setting at the liberty of those who have been oppressed. That's in Luke 4.18. In the gospel reference to that, and certainly we see, they said there in the bottom of 6.4, John 5.36, it says, I bear witness that the Father has sent me. The Father has given me this to work. The works that I do bear witness of Him. And all that the Father gives me, top of page 6.5, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, in no means will I cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. John 6, 37 and 38. Nearly a dozen times, see that in D there? Nearly a dozen times in John 6, 38 and 7, 33, sets out above. Jesus refers to his Father as him who sent me. 
So the Spirit of the Lord, when we look at that Scripture in Luke 4 representing Isaiah 61, that fulfillment of that Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He said, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Many times, I don't know if you've been in a place where all of a sudden God sovereignly heals, even when people are not asking. Um, I remember being in a ministry with Randy Clark in um, uh, Brazil, in Manaus, Brazil. And one night, Randy was getting ready to preach. We were in the church there. It was a church, literally a church without walls. It had no walls. They had enough money to put a, a roof on, and they had a, a rough-hewn stage. It was, it was a beautiful church, seated about six to 8,000, I think. And, uh, but they hadn't had enough money to finish the walls. And Randy started to preach, and all of a sudden he made this statement um, that made the the, your presence come. May the, the lightning and the, 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 I think it was the lightning of your presence come. As soon as he finished that sentence, there was a, a burst of thunder. Boom. The whole place shook. The metal, uh, metal roof and everything was like, whoa. And um, they were in the dry season. Had not rained, if my recollection was, for three months already. And one of the Brazilian pastors who was my translator, he turned to me and says, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes here with power, it always rains. Within a few minutes, the, it was like the sky opened up. It was crazy. And I remember I was on the stage standing next to Randy, and there were about 25, my number is right, 25 uh, deaf mutes, and there was a signer in front that was translating for the sermon for Randy to all the deaf mutes, and all of the uh, counselor sponsors of those individuals were sitting next to them. And all of a sudden, the wind starts blowing, and there's no walls on the church, and they're to the farthest right corner of the church, and all of a sudden, the mist of the rain starts blowing in, and it lands on the deaf mutes. And all of a sudden, bedlam breaks out, sovereignly. At least 10. I think we have it on camera, we have it on film, eight or 10 of them, numbers escape me a little bit now, but a large number of them all of a sudden get their hearing and they are able to speak, but they have no language skills. So you're hearing this, dee, 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 and their counselors are crying. They can't, it's, it's a sovereign move, sudden move of God. And all of a sudden, this woman stands up to my left. She, I'm getting zapped right now. She stands up, and, she, and it was either a man or a woman. He says, I can see, I can see. And, and all of a sudden, sovereign healings broke out. And I remember Randy turning to me and goes, I've lost control, and God is here. What, a, what an understatement. <laughs> wow, it was such an amazing night for all of us, and it was that sovereign place. But there's times when God does that, but oftentimes God does it for those that are hungry. We see that, right? The woman with the issue of blood in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. She spent all of her money. She's desperate. She says to herself, if I can just touch his hem. There's this desperation. How about Jairus' daughter, the leader of the synagogue, whose daughter's dying? What would you do if your child was dying? <clears throat> and so it's in that desperation that God seems to miraculously show up. So we see that on the bottom of page 6-5, that, that Jesus often healed in response to the requests, either from a family member, friends, um, we see these examples. 
So there's something about the hunger and the desire. I've had people tell me, well, if God wants to heal me, He knows where I am. Well, that, that could happen, I guess. But it seems to me that he, he loves those who are in pursuit. And yet you can get discouraged. I remember many times people have prayed and prayed and prayed, and then there's the suddenly, right, that happens. So in the case of um, on page 6-7, there's this desire by this paralytic, the friends of a paralytic. They, they can't get in the house because there's so many people, so they tear the roof off and they lower their friend down. Jesus, seeing their faith, is like moved by that. And of course, he's, he's, he completely heals them. And so we see this, that there's this two kingdoms that are at war. And so the kingdom at war, you know, in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan that are at war, this enemy that's at war. In Matthew 13, 28, we see this when we, Jesus declares. You see that in page 6, 8? Jesus believed that the two kingdoms were at war with each other, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He refers to Satan as the enemy, the one who sows the tares in the, meets, in the midst of the wheat. And so he also regards illness as the work of Satan. Now, some people have challenged this, but let's look at this scripture. In Luke 13, 16, it says, when criticized of a healing, this woman who was crippled on the Sabbath, he was, crit- he was criticized for, for that. He said, should this woman who Satan has bound for 18 years be healed on the Sabbath? And so we see that Satan had bound her. We know that Jesus, in 1 John 3, 8, at the bottom of that page, it says that the Son of God manifested and destroyed the works of the devil. So that was one of the things that he was, he was responsible for was to destroy the works of the devil. And so that's my alarm to pray for 714. So let's pray for 714. Right now, Lord, as, the, as people of Second Chronicles 714, we come into agreement that we are now standing that you would heal this land, heal this completely that this virus that's attacking, Lord, that you would send healing from heaven, a cure, but you would release such a powerful move of your presence right now in Jesus' name. Amen? Set my alarm to remind me to pray. Thank you, God. All right. So we see that on the bottom of page 6-8, it says that the purpose that the Son came was to destroy the works of the devil, and he clearly shows that the work of sickness is one of those works of the devil. All right, look at page 6-9. We see here that this basis or this model, should believers pray for the sick to set the captives free? Well, we've shared previously, in the middle of that page there, A, it says, most assuredly, Jesus says, I quote, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do. In fact, greater works because he goes to the Father. So why does God use men and women and children to bring this about. He certainly loves to co-labor with us, and he could do it by himself, but he likes to carry out this through the use of human beings. And so we like that. Many times he'll move sovereignly, as I've shared, but for the most part, he also likes to use us in the midst of it. Some of the Old Testament examples turn to page 610. Moses prays for Miriam, his sister's healing. Remember when she comes against him, um, says, look, I'm a prophetess, and don't we hear from God? And he and his older brother Aaron come as a, it's a really challenging scripture about authority within the kingdom of the Lord, the theological theocracy of the kingdom. And uh, God doesn't like it when the leader's challenged. And he basically puts 
Miriam in a fit. She has leprosy, and Moses has to pray for her. We also see uh, another example in the Old Testament where Elisha prays for Naaman. Elisha prays for the widow's son. You can see that on the top of page 610. So, through the agency of men, throughout the New Testament, there's tons of examples. Middle of page there, D, it says healing by believers. Philip in Samaria. Ananias who healed Paul's eyes, right? Peter heals the lame man at the temple. Peter raises Dorcas from the dead at Joppa in Acts 9. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. Remember the, it's kind of an interesting all-night preaching. How would you like to have the preacher pe- preach all night long? The guy's in the third-story window, falls out and dies. What a sermon that day that must have been. But hey, God gets the glory because at that point, we see Paul raise him in Acts 20, verse 12, from the dead. So that was an amazing prayer meeting. Many miracles are done by Paul in Ephesus. We see that in Acts 19. So God can and does heal with sovereign power, but He also co-labors with us. That's the main point takeaways. We see from the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, with those in one of the listings there is the gift of healings. On page 611, ministry to the sick and the tormented is a demonstration of the love of God and God's heart to heal. In the middle of that page, I quote out of Matthew 8:16, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Wow. So he lays hands on them. Look at number, see there, Luke 4:40. He had laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. So clearly, the ministry of Christ was a message of salvation and continued to be a message of healing and deliverance. We see that on the bottom of page 611 there. Healing the sick and setting the captives free was a demonstration of His power. Now, how about this? Often I get this quote, you know, well, how do you get this power? How do you, be, how do you become aware of this power? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus imparted it to His disciples. He gave them this authority. Look at the top of page 612. Jesus held the authority given to Him by the Father over sickness and disease. We saw that in Matthew 28. He says, Jesus says, I now have power both in heaven and in earth. Then He goes and He turns and gives it to the, His disciples. He says, I've given you power over sickness, disease, and demonic oppression. And so, look at that, I quoted Colossians 1 before, but I've got it here again, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, on top of page 612, Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or power, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and all things consist by Him. Verse 18 of Matthew 20, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus was able then to empower and to impart. Isn't it wonderful that He said, just, as, just after Jesus' resurrection, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, He says, He tells the disciples, Stay in Jerusalem until the Father sends what He promised. In a few days from now, you will receive the Holy Spirit and power. And then in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts, he goes on and says, you'll become my witnesses. 
So there's something powerful about the impartation of the Holy Spirit that is given to us to then walk out what He has called us in the Great Commission to walk out. In uh, C there, under, on page 612, it says in Matthew 10, verses 1 through 14, reads in part, And when He had called His twelve together, His disciples, He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. You also know probably from Acts chapter 4, the man at Gate Beautiful who was lame, he's healed. It causes an outbreak and all sorts of challenges. At the same point, it's just a powerful move of God, followed up by an earthquake and an empowerment for more by the disciples. How about healing the sick and deliverance is actually an aid to evangelism? Um, I remember being in Tanzania, preaching at a little town called Boma, and um uh, we were there doing a breaking free session. Um, I had, a, I think, several thousand in the field. It's hard to estimate. Uh, I know I had a thousand in the morning and more after lunch. Um, and so in the process of delivering that message for preparation for deliverance, I gave an altar call and we, we counted 250 came to salvation in that little grass field. So it's an aid to evangelism. When, when people are healed or sick or they're, they're coming in a place where they're desperate, in some of these countries where there's no health care system, there's, there's no, the, the doctors are so few and far between. When Jesus comes and brings healing, it's amazing. I, I remember there were many witnesses with us on that trip, 16, with one of the first ladies who gave testimony. Um, she was from another faith. She had a tumor in her uterus. And she came, she went to uh, this other place where the religion was praying, and nothing happened. She said she came up at the end. She, came, she said, I came here, and Jesus healed me. The tumor disappeared. And this outbreak just was amazing how the testimony and the faith rose, and people were healed. So it is definitely an aid to evangelism, and we see that, and it's part of the power uh, evangelism that the New Testament speaks of, and actually is actually part of the Great Commission that is expected that we would see these signs following us. Turn with me to page uh, 614. He goes on, Jesus says, I do not do the works, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me, but if I do then you should believe me. Believe the works that I do. Basically, the works demonstrate or model that. In the middle of that page, 614e, it says in Acts chapter 9, we read Peter's healing of Aeneas at Lydia, who referred to as one who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Wow. Bedridden and paralyzed. When she's raised, he became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed the Lord. This alarm doesn't want me to stop praying. <laughs> Lord, I pray again in Jesus' name. Lord, send forth your armies, angel armies across the earth. Give our leaders wisdom. Bring discoveries to that sickness and disease in Jesus' name. So we see that uh, many believed in Joppa after that in Acts 9.42, and it became known throughout Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So we see again, Power evangelism, power healing, deliverance is a, is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to bring many to Christ. And so that's why we keep pressing in, keep believing for more. Page 615, praying for the sick and the tormented is commissioned by the Lord. I'm going to use this several times, but we see it here. Uh, this is in Matthew 10. 
The commission is described by Matthew as this. It's at the bottom of the page, 615. It says, And when he had called his twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. That's in Matthew 10. I don't know about you, but when some people come up and it looks like they've had this condition for a long time and it's, it's not a headache, it's a really, wow. Remember what Jesus said here in Matthew, I've given power over all diseases, over all power of the enemy. So there's nothing that Jesus is not over and it has the ability to completely bring restoration and healing to. Amen? Similarly, we see there in D on 6.16, he sent out the 70. This is again out of Luke 10. They go out. If you're familiar with the scripture, I love this scripture. I've used it many times, especially when I'm on a mission field or up against some spiritual darkness. I'll quote these scriptures right in the enemy's face when they're lying to you about who they are and what they're going to do to you or do to others as part of the intimidation. Quoting Scripture, because what does he say? He says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to cut between soul and spirit. Right? It's active. It's alive. It's full of living power. I remember doing a deliverance recently from a person from another uh, location, and they had come, and the demons were lying. They said they were going to bring harm to us. We'd start praying, and uh, I'd quote Scripture, and the demon would turn to me and say, I hate Scripture. I hate the Word. I said, oh, that's wonderful. Then we got real angry and praying. Uh, one of my co- uh, co-laborers with me was praying in her native Spanish language. So I hate when you speak in Spanish and pray in Spanish. <laughs> Great. So it's like, not that they're too clever, but they, they also reveal uh, what is hated. They hate the word. They hate the blood. When I would bring up the blood of Jesus, they would scream and go on. I hate the blood. Well, yes, because it's defeated you. And so... We stand under those promises that the Word is full of power. But we want to minister when we minister under the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at page 617. In Matthew 7, he uses these words. This is a a very humbling scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done wonders in your name? And then I will declare that I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The implication to me there is they were outside the will of the Father. Not that uh, he doesn't will us to pray for the sick and to bring uh, healing to those that are tormented or to prophesy. In fact, he says that in Acts chapter 2 in the latter days. All flesh shall prophesy, but it comes down to, are we in alignment with the will? And the only way that we know that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our guide. He's our dunamis. He's the one. And on page 618, there's a warning. Um, We want to be obedient to the move of the Holy Spirit and never take credit for anything. That's just, um, I love what uh, my Papa Bill Johnson says. He says, you know, Oftentimes, there's praise that's heaped, and he says thank you, but he, often, he then reflects it back to God um, because he knows that that's the source of where it all comes from. So I think that's really good to us that we humble ourselves before him, and we don't take credit. We realize we're really 
I, I think I've, if you look at the uh, bottom of that page, I love this statement. I use it often. We are the gloves on His hands. The gloves never tell the hand what to do or where it goes. They just follow. <laughs> They're fit perfectly, right? When He said He wore Gideon like a glove, He's saying, look, I want you to be so clothed. That kind of goes with the Colossians Scripture. Clothe yourself in Him, in His marvelous love. That is a, just a great picture for me. So we know that we are um, commissioned to do this, but we also, on the bottom of the page, what is your motivation for doing healing and deliverance or for salvation or for anything that you do with the Lord? We know from 1 Corinthians 13, if it's not motivated by love, it's just going to be a lot of burned up hay, wooden stubble, right? Uh, so if I don't do it for the purposes of love what, and the right motive, then it really becomes works. And so we don't want ever to be in that place. We want it to be always motivated by love. Page 7-1. Now let's talk about, so that finishes the quickly, I realize, but it's supposed to be a review, the healing basis and the deliverance basis biblically. But now I want to look at the model that we use in healing. And like I said, for the salvation model, it, these are straightforward steps, and you get comfortable kind of practice uh, by yourself. Um, if you, and that we've given actually several different types of scenarios in here, kind of actual ones that were used in the field on how you might pray to, to heal and to interview someone. But in uh, module seven, page seven one, we are commissioned to heal, and so we we certainly covered that pretty well. So turn the page. Um, what's the pre the preparation that a, that a minister of the gospel or a ministry team member would use. It's very similar. We've gone over this, whether it's in the salvation model or in the protocols. Um, there is personal preparation, and there's some dangers associated with not being prepared. You never want to go into war or battle with half your armor off or an open in your armor. Uh, we call those open doors. So, one, you should be um, prepared. You should be prayed up. You should be a clean channel. I love that in uh, B at the top of page 7-2 there, pray to be a clean channel. Uh, he says in 1 John 1-9, if we will confess our sins to Him, Jesus, He is faithful, thank God, to forgive us from all unrighteousness. That's just powerful, powerful. It goes along with what Romans 3, 4, and 5 chapter says, you have been made the righteousness of Christ. He has declared you righteous. You are holy, Colossians, blameless, without a single fault. I mean, these are mind-boggling, amazing truths that how powerful the blood is for those that come to Him, right? And He says in James 4, if you will humble yourself and draw close to God, then He will draw close to you. Then you can resist the devil and He'll flee. So be prayed up. Be a clean vessel. Ask the Holy Spirit, is there anyone that we need to forgive? This is a, in fact, my devotional today, my wife and I do this devotional with Jennifer LeClaire. Today was about forgiveness, and it was this scripture in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where it again is a very sobering scripture. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven by the Father. Just say la on that for a minute. If you carry any form of bitterness, I don't care how deep the offense is. Man, there's some deep offenses in my life of people, and we're praying for the persons and persons that have severely wounded us, praying for their salvation, that we'll see them in heaven. 
That's an act of the will. That, that is not an act of the flesh. It says, I have made a decision in my will to do what that word says, I will forgive. I may not feel like it, but I will do it. Jesus, I'm sure, did not feel like it hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a good model for us. So there's this thing about make sure there's any unconfessed sin in your life. Deal with it. Any open doors, any unforgiveness. Because we want to see the move of God and we need to be, be aware of our own, what we carry into the process. There's some other key points here. Um, don't worry, this is an H, don't worry if the person you're praying for doesn't have faith for healing. Sometimes you say, oh, I've been prayed for so many times, I don't know if anything's going to happen, but I'll let you pray for me again. <laughs> wow. Okay, so I better muster up some authority and faith myself. So don't worry about where the level of faith is. Um, I just shared that sometimes it's sovereignly. God just tends to sovereignly show up. Be flexible. The universal rule here, that's an I. The rule about how to pray will apply in this case. There's nothing special or particular words. The Holy Spirit will be your guide. Practice listening to Him and just move in your presence and let the love of the Lord flow through you. We've listed on page 7-3 all five steps of the healing model. Let me just review the, the big ones first. The initial interview, that's fancy language for be nice, say hello, get to know the person. What's happening? Why are you here? How can I pray for you? What's going on with you? Um, what brought you here tonight? It's kind of go with the flow of where you are at that time. It's, it's how you would do it anywhere if you were uh, meeting someone, even in a grocery store and just talking. Then you shift into what's called the diagnoses. So what's going on? What's the condition? How long have you had it? When did it start? Did anything, was anything going on when this began? So you're really kind of like a doctor would. You're hearing the symptoms of what's going on and you're trying to bring an understanding of what is because you're going to bring out a different tool for prayer. Is it going to be a commanding prayer? Is it going to be a petition prayer? Is it demonic or is it, what, what is it that's here? And then you'll select the type of prayer. Then you'll actually do the praying in the ministry. And then you have a post-ministry follow-up or some of the directions after this. So let's look at step one on the initial interview. I just listed some things like, be nice. What, what's your name? Um, two there, it says, what would you like me to pray for? How long have you had this condition? What was the cause? Have you seen a doctor for it? Was there anything happening in your life when this whole thing happened? Was there anything traumatic that was going on in your life when it started to occur? And so you're listening. You're kind of listening in the Holy Spirit, trying to uh, use your mind, but at the same time listen in the Spirit. And you may get to a place where, you, I don't know if I have a clue, then I say at the bottom there, make an educated guess. I, I've, a statement that we've heard often is, um, God often does more I do more by accident than I do on purpose. God seems to use these vessels, willing vessels, to, to just show up and amaze us in the midst of it, right? Some of the most amazing miracles I've seen was I had no clue where we were going on this one. Turn to page 7-4. The step two is the diagnoses, and here's some examples. If you know the cause of the condition, go at once into the ministry step. Go right in and pray. Perhaps there was an accident. Um, you know, you can see if it maybe suggested, was it a natural cause? If somebody caused it, 
Do you, have you forgiven that person? We know that unforgiveness is a block to healing. So they said, yeah, I was in a car accident. They, they T-boned me. And Well, have you ever forgiven that person? If they haven't, then go right there. Would you, like, you can give them the understanding that it's not about wanting to. Realize you've been in a lot of pain. But forgiveness is one of those things. And you could quote Matthew 6. Jesus said, forgive and you'll be forgiven. How about emotional stress that goes along with some things? If someone has hurt one of your children or there's been something that's happened, you've been betrayed, um, that seemed to go, yeah, I was in the midst of a divorce when this condition came upon me. Was that an open door? Was there bitterness or resentment? We're trying at that point to decipher. You see that in that paragraph. Is it spiritual? Is the occult practice has been involved? Is it a habitual sin, some kind of curse that's associated with that? So we're asking the Holy Spirit for um, the diagnoses. Once we've kind of centered in on what it is, uh, then we have either a command or a petition. The command is, you know now there's something spiritually going on, um, a tumor. We may command that tumor to, to die, that cancer to die, all the cells of that cancerous growth to dry up in the name of Jesus or the spine to be made straight, to be healed. The petition prayer would be something like, Father, in Jesus' name, you restored sight to the, to the blind in Scripture. Father, we know that you said the blind would see. Lord, do it again. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. And so there's either a petition or a commanding prayer. Um, if there was a word of knowledge attached to it, someone came up, we may have had a word of knowledge out of 1 Corinthians 12, so that word was given. Is there anybody here that has this condition? They've come up for that. Well, you've already gotten a statement of faith released, so you know that the Lord is doing something there. So, Lord, based on that, you could pray right into it. Lord, we now speak to this uh, condition that was given over diabetes or um, some other form of sickness. Casting out an afflicting spirit. Um, the spirits of infirmity, my experience with this, I just had one recently, a woman we were ministering to, all of a sudden the pain as we were honing in on a particular area, I think it was rejection actually, the pain level started to rise significantly, severely, almost distracting to the person. Finally she said, man, right now I have a tremendous pain right now, right here. Sometimes an afflicting spirit will try to divert attention from what's happening and bring that level of pain. And so it can be an afflicting spirit manifesting through pain. What we did at that point, works, uh, the Lord works this often this way. We take authority over a spirit of affliction, a spirit of infirmity, command that pain to stop right now. You're not authorized to operate. And I can't tell you how many times that thing instantly it stops. And so, again, you're paying attention. You're looking for um, this word of knowledge to, to give you understanding. If there was a curse, or a vow, we break that curse, have them actually verbalize, cutting this curse, I, I cursed myself, um, or I had this curse spoken over me. In my book, you, you'll read the, the first deliverance um, healing that we did of a crippled woman, uh, Priscilla. She, um, she had to break the curse that was spoken over her family. When her father um, made fun of a child, next door neighbor went to Macumba, he paid the Macumba witch who put a curse on his family and Priscilla became crippled at age one. And then later now she was probably in her mid to late 20s as a mother of one she's crippled, uh, obviously afflicted and so when she forgave and broke that curse and forgave the person who put it on her, 
just read, read in, the man, in the Breaking Free book. It's just one of the most incredible things that I ever saw in my life. It was just amazing. Prayers of preparation, um, we can have them for forgiveness. I had one, this is an example on page 7-5 of a, a spirit of arthritis, an afflicting spirit of arthritis. I had a woman whose child had been murdered. She came to my office, and she was really bent up with arthritis. Arthritis is, a, is many believe it comes from bitterness, resentment. Um, at least experientially, people have, have seen that. Um, when I told her she needed to forgive the one who murdered her child, she said she would not. She would never do that. And I told her that I didn't have enough power of prayer to do anything for her unless she was willing to forgive. We finally worked through that, and as I prayed for her, her fingers straightened out, and the arthritic pain left her hands. So I know by experience that this is a true statement of forgiveness is powerful, and it's biblical, scriptural. Um, on page 7-6, make sure that you're always gentle. This is not um, demonst- you know, demanding. It uh, doesn't have to be loud. Again, always keep in mind that you're in this loving condition. This person has come here either with a, a, a need for deliverance or healing from torment or for sickness, and they're, they're just asking for help, and they want someone to partner with them. And so keep that in mind. Be gentle. Be careful. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Be open to receive. Um, some issues here with uh, people who find it, maybe it's really hard for some people to even let you pray for them. So we want to be really sensitive and careful about that. On uh, page 7-7, seven, seven, um, the step four is the actual ministry. And uh, you could say, this is always good. First, you could speak audibly, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, bring your healing power. That is always, as a starter, Holy Spirit, you're the one that's going to move here. Tell the person receiving ministry um, that you'll be quiet for a minute or two. You might want to just be quiet and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come. Ask them maybe to close their eyes and to receive. Shut off out some of the distractions that might be going on in an open room. Um, in D there it says always pray or command in the name of Jesus in my name they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover Matthew 16, 17 and 18 whatever you do in words and deed do all in the name of the Lord you'll see in many of the examples here where they try deliverance uh, and they don't know Jesus or they don't use his name and it, they're powerless we see that in Acts 19 with the sons of Sceva I know Paul and I know um, uh, Jesus, but I don't know you. Who are you? <laughs> and it's like you don't have authority over darkness that way. It's always by the great and powerful name of Jesus. So in that ministry, uh, uh, in the module on page 7-8, in the name of Jesus, I command this ruptured disc to be healed, filled with fluid. You can be specific. If you're praying for somebody with diabetes number there, it says the name of Jesus. I ask you to heal the pancreas, Father, that, you would fu- that it would function normally. If there's a, a moving thing that starts moving around, one of the sure signs, I believe, of an afflicting spirit is when that thing, the pain starts to move. You lay on hands here, and it starts to move. You can then realize, well, that's probably an afflicting spirit, a, a spirit of infirmity. Command that thing to come out of Joe's body right now. So now the question is, well, when do you stop praying? How do you, do you pray long, short? And that is really dependent on what's going on. You're, you're watching what's going. You're praying with your eyes open. You're watching for manifestations. 
and seeing if you're making progress. Uh, if you are, stay there, you know, stay on it. If if you're making progress, person says, yeah, my pain level's gone from a 10 to an 8 to a 7. Uh, wow, this is, I'm feeling tingling. Well, well, suppose you're praying for a shoulder pain, but the person also has had a, a foot problem, and they start to feel tingling in their foot. Well, shift to the foot. If God's moving on the foot, Lord, we just pray right now. And so you can pray short and commanding prayers, um, and so it's, it's just really good. Be persistent, page 710. Be persistent. Just keep praying. Ask the Lord to, to continue. And that loving attitude, I just can't overstress that enough. On page 711, don't preach. Don't give advice. Don't give sermons. Um, this is prayer time. The person doesn't really um, need that at this point. You want to just continue to pray and, and encourage and keep your, keep your love on on them. So, um, You could ask some questions if you're running into a roadblock. Does anybody else in your family have this thing? And they say, yeah, it runs throughout my family. That gives indication of a generational sin. Well, then you might start thinking about, um, are, is there any secret societies operating in your family? Is there a curse that's come down through the family? Uh, so you start thinking about generational sin, that Exodus 20, verse 5, the sins of the father visit to the third and fourth generation. So has anyone ever pronounced a curse on you, page 711? Have you ever been involved in any kind of witchcraft or the occult or practices? You've been to a medium or a psychic. What is it that uh, they may have opened some doors on? We'll get more into some of that as we proceed with uh, the deliverance model. And so you can see on page 711, there and then um, page 712 often a person who comes with physical healing will also have emotional healing needs uh, feeling inadequate or rejected or sad or depressed can't do what I used to do um, so be aware that you may be ministering to both the the emotional side as well as the physical side of that and on page 713 um, when a person has multiple problems, as a general rule, it's better to finish praying for one condition. See that on 713A? As a general rule, it's best to finish praying for one condition before starting on another. But like I said, if the Holy Spirit starts moving in one direction, you know, you're praying for sinus infection there in C, and the foot begins to tingle, well, okay, I guess the Lord's doing something with feet, so shift there and just follow along and, uh, and let the Lord uh, do that. And so... On page 714, step five is the, is the, when do you stop praying? How do you know when you're done praying? Um, well, one, if the person's completely healed, he'll celebrate, give testimony, awesome, hey. But if the person um, wants you to stop, don't, don't you know, they're tired. They, sometimes you may find someone uh, maybe in a wheelchair or something that's just, they're just weary. Don't, don't make it so that you have to keep pressing that. If they ask to stop, then stop. Uh, when the Holy Spirit tells you to stop, um, but always encourage the person. Remember that the it, it can be a, 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 an absolute rapid healing, but it oftentimes is a progressive healing, telling them to keep, don't open any more doors, keep believing, um, don't be accusatory, saying anything about, well, you seem to have a lack of faith. <laughs> That's why you're not healed. That's never going to help, right? Encourage them to come back, continue to press in, be spiritual, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Remember, Jesus says to be, to be persistent. In the following um, pages of 7, 16, 7, 17, 18, and 19, 
all the way through. It's, these are examples of, of prayers that um, some that we actually took from the field to kind of give you an example of how you might interview, how to progress through prayer, uh, which direction to take. So I just encourage you to look at those examples there in the rest of module 17. So next week, homework assignment, we want to look at words of knowledge for healing. So if you would read uh, module 8, and let's see here. We also want to, um, that'll do the words of knowledge for healing. Um, look at module 9, specifics for conditions. And then I want you to look at, so we'll do module 8, 9, and 10. What are some of the um, hindrances to healing? And you'll see those in module 10. And then we'll get into some heavy-duty stuff about curses uh, the following week in modules 11 and 12. So that's the homework assignment. Uh, before we conclude tonight, um, I wanted to share a couple of things about the authority that um, these are. These books up here are absol absolutely inspiring. There's so many really good ones that... Um, I would encourage you maybe to get this one. Don Basham, who was a denominational pastor, really didn't believe in deliverance. He wrote a book, Deliver Us From Evil, and his examples of walking through the revelation of that. Um, this one here, Listen to Me, Satan, uh, by Carlos Anacondia, in one of my mission trips into Argentina, had the privilege of going to one of his open stadiums. Just incredible. He is a, a major Argentine revivalist. Uh, there must have been 10,000 people in the soccer stadium. He starts every one of his meetings with authority over Satan. Listen to me, Satan. He happened to be in the same hotel we were in, and we got a, a personal impartation ministry time with him. He imparted to us. We heard we were deliverance folks, and just a, a powerful book. I used this a, a year later when I went to Tanzania, and I was standing in front of a crowd uh, those that had come in blood sacrifices to kill me and my team. And I learned of that just before I went on stage from a woman we had just delivered. She said, I'm here with five others, and we've come to kill that pastor, pointing to me. I said, well, this better work, Lord. I, I trust your word is true. And I got up, and I did what uh, Carlos Anacondia uh, had imparted to us. And so, but it's really basis of authority. So let me uh, share with you Charles Kraft. I spoke to him a while back, wrote this book, Defeating Dark Angels. I would encourage you. And uh, today, as I was just picking up a book, I opened sporadically to this page. It wasn't marked like I've marked it, but it was right on. I believe the Holy Spirit wanted us to read this tonight. His statement is, this is on page 84 of Defeating Dark Angels. It says, if we only knew how much power we possess. And here's the example. He says, if we, only if we Christians knew how much power we possess. This is part of that revelation that I've been after us for. He was recently chatting with a woman who was converted to Christianity from the occult. And while she was serving Satan, she said she had the ability to see the amount of spiritual power people carried with them. Now, that's an interesting statement. According to her, every person carries a certain amount of spiritual power, but the difference in power between Christians and non-Christians is amazing. Indeed, she could spot Christians immediately in a group, even from a great distance, by noting the amount of spiritual power they carried. She now knows that the reason for this difference 
is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus spent so much time talking about that in Acts 1, 4, verse 8, in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19. We see that, that Paul deals with this, the disciples deal with it. You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the, the occult folks, the darkness can see it. Yes, we know everyone who believes in Christ receives salvation, has the Holy Spirit. But there is another level of this. Read it in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 19 as examples. I don't have time tonight. She goes on to say, she remarked that though she and her occult group felt Christians, um, that there were no threat from Christians that didn't know how to use this power. For Christians who had no idea of the power within them, though the power of the Holy Spirit was there, it afforded them protection from evil power, but they didn't know how to use it. So they weren't threatened by it. However, she went on to say, the occult group, however, discovered that some Christians did know how to use their power. And the servants of Satan learned to steer way clear of them, for they could be a threat. Fortune tellers, occult healers, and others working under the power of Satan discovered, for example, when Christians are around, they cannot operate smoothly. A missionary friend recently said he was at a Mexican cathedral where one of the occult healers was at work. He simply sat down and started to pray. And as he sat there, the healer looked up and several times, and then he packed up all of his paraphernalia and left. So we see that this, again, this is the, the ability of us to understand who we are in Christ. Um, as I was looking at Derek Prince, he, he's really just one of my favorite guys, and he prophesied over this southeastern North Carolina that there was going to be a revival greater than the Welsh revival. In 1975, he prophesied that, and uh, that we had found favor, and we're standing in that agreement. And he wrote this book, They Shall Expel Demons. And um, remember, he was a, um, he's in heaven now, but amazing, wrote many books, and lots of authority, great, great man of God. And uh, he was a British Army officer and saw a lot. And, but he started out with the same lack of understanding of what his authority was and what demons were. Here's an account. This is Confrontation with Demons out of his book, They Shall Expel Demons, in page 43. It says, this is his first encounter, he and his wife, Lydia. says, I left the pastorate in London, and Lydia and I went to Kenya as educational missionaries, and we became friends with a team of African evangelists who used to describe to us their personal encounters with demons. On one occasion, they were ministering to an uneducated African woman who only spoke her tribal dialect, but the demon spoke in perfect English, you can't cast us out, you don't have enough education. My friends responded, we're not casting you out by education, we're casting you out because we're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew my friends well enough to be convinced that they were not exaggerating or fantasizing. Their accounts of dealings with demons reminded me of incidents recorded in the New Testament. But I don't know, uh, what, I didn't know what to do with this information. Busy with my work as a teacher and training in college, um, I just put it in my kind of pending file. After five years in that field, Lydia and I left Kenya and traveled and ministered in Europe, Britain, Canada, and the United States. In 1963, I accepted a position as a pastor of a small Pentecostal congregation in Seattle, Washington. One Saturday, I received a phone call from a friend, Eric Watson, a charismatic Baptist pastor I only knew slightly. He said, I have a woman here, he said, who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit, 
but she needs deliverance from evil spirits. I had never heard a Baptist pastor talk like this. What followed was even more unexpected. The Lord, he said, has shown me that you and your wife are to be the instruments of her deliverance. And it happens to be today. I was somewhat taken back, and I certainly was not prepared uh, to let another person make that kind of a decision for me. So I breathed a quick prayer. Lord, if this is from you, do you really want me to do what he's saying? To my surprise, I sensed the Lord's response, yes, this is from me. He said to the pastor, all right, bring the woman over. He titles this the first battle. While Lydia and I were waiting for the pastor Watson and the woman, we received a surprise visit from John and Sherry Faulkner, a Presbyterian couple who had recently been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We told them about the visitors who were expecting and invited them to stay and pray. Then Eric Watson arrived, this fair-haired, blue-eyed woman. He introduced as Mrs. Esther Henderson. I scanned her closely, looking for outward evidence of strange spiritual condition, a wild look in her eye or some metallic uh, ring in her voice. She seemed perfectly ordinary, middle-class, American housewife, mid-30s. I judged she didn't seem nervous or frightened at all. Pastor Watson got right down to business immediately. He sat Esther down in a chair, explained, she's been delivered from a demon of nicotine, but there are others. Listening to what he said, I decided to remain neutral until the Lord gave me some kind of clarity. Pastor Watson stood in front of Esther, and he said in a loud voice, you evil spirits, I command you to come out of Esther. Nothing happened. His voice grew louder. I command you, come out of her. Nothing happened. I know you're in there. I command you, come out in Jesus' name. The moment he mentioned the name of Jesus, there was a definite reaction from Esther. As I watched closely, her countenance changed as though this another personality started to emerge in the surface. A yellow, sulfurous glow appeared in the center of each one of her eyeballs. I knew there was another power inside, ordinary-looking Baptist housewife. Eric Watson continued to stand and shout at whatever it was. Apparently, he felt that shouting gave him more authority. But after a while, it seemed to realize that making no progress. And he looked at me questioning. I've been thinking it over, recalling especially the message of Jesus. So I took my stand in front of Esther and said something like this. Now, you evil spirit that is in this woman, I'm talking to you and not to the woman. What is your name? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to answer me. The answer came immediate. One syllable uttered with incredible venom, hate. Everything in the woman's face registered pure, undiluted hatred. Never in all my life had I seen such hatred in anybody's eyes. The promptness of the demon's answer took me by surprise. I didn't know what to do next. I decided to follow the instructions Jesus had given his disciples. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, spirit of hate, come out of this woman. In an insolent voice, not in the least like Esther's, replied, This is my house. I've lived here 35 years. I'm not coming out. Unbidden, there came to my mind the Bible passage in which the unclean spirit goes out of a man. And I will return to my house from where I came. Matthew 12, 44. So the demon's reference to Esther as his house was scriptural. With this in mind, I said to the demon, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are coming out. The demon continued to defy me while I continued to say the name of Jesus. You're coming out. 
It was a real conflict of wills, and it seems that I have beat the demon down stage by stage. Each stage took quite a while, but the more I quoted Scripture and the name of Jesus, the more I gained ascendancy over the enemy. Eventually, the demon began to bargain with me. If I come out, I'll come back. No, you won't. You're going to stay out. Then it said, well, even if I do come out, my brothers are here, and they'll kill her. I said, no, you'll come out, and your brothers will come out too. At the same time, I realized I had picked up some useful information. Apparently, there are more. <laughs> the demon then said, even if we come out of her, we will go and get her daughter. I said, no, you will not go out of Esther. You will go out of Esther first, and then you will come out of her daughter. I had not known that Esther had a daughter, but I was following a simple principle. Whatever the demon said, I countered it. At this point, the demon changed its tactics. Without even warning, Esther's arms rose up, crossed over her throat, and she began to choke herself. Her first face turned purple and blue. This is a form of intimidation. Get you off track. Seen this many times. John Faulkner, the Presbyterian, who was taller and heavier, then joined me, and we united our strength to successfully pull Esther's hands away from her throat. Her strength was supernatural. Then I returned to my battle with the demon. I began to feel this tremendous pressure in my belly, like an inflated balloon. Suddenly, this hissing sound came out of her mouth. Her head fell forward, limp, and her body relaxed. At the same time, the balloon inside of me deflated, and I knew that the demon had been gone. Soon, however, Esther stiffened again. Inside me, the same tension I realized in the contact with another one, the brothers. I went through the same procedure with the next demon that named himself Fear. The battle, too, became. The third, and tired, I stepped back from one of them, looking more and more less at the procedure than what we had established. The struggle ended. Nearly everyone present had participated, and it had lasted five hours. By the way, we average about five hours in our prayer ministry sessions, just for information. By the time the struggle ended, nearly everyone present had participated in the session that lasted. After that fear, the next demon that came out was pride, jealousy, self-pity. I said to myself, it was beginning to understand why some people could never seem to keep a positive scriptural attitude during scriptural during, uh, behaviors. It goes on and it, it shares that this was his first experience. I wanted to share this because um, one of the things you'll see when we get into the destiny model, which is our model for doing uh, inner healing deliverance, we always start out with declaring first that they are born-again believers, that they have Christ them in their heart, that they want to be saved, they want to be um, delivered, their will is engaged. We also... Um, spend a great deal of time working on the forgiveness and confession side. We believe that's out of Matthew 12. We'll get into a lot more detail in the next few weeks on the destiny model and why you don't have to go through this kind of, um, oftentimes, not the same level of what I'll call trauma drama. Um, once there's been this tying up of the strong man that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 12. But I wanted to, to at least give you um, enough experience. You've now had the Lester Summerall example, which was a documented case from Manila. Here's a case from Derek Prince. Uh, here's a case from uh, uh, Charles Kraft. And there are so many others that um, one of uh, Carlos Andacondia's uh, deliverance ministers, Pablo Batari, his book, Free in Christ, is another one. Um, Spiritual Warfare. Uh, Chris Volatin wrote one on Spirit Wars. 
um, confronting darkness, bondage breakers. Uh, here's another one from Derek Prince, The War in Heaven. These are all examples um, breaking the threefold demonic cord. Um, I like one that um, Peter Wagner wrote, which is uh, the prayer shield, Peter Wagner on prayer shield. This is a really good one. We, we talked briefly about this the other day where um, there's, there's ground-level warfare and then there's warfare that you do against principalities and powers, and the strategy against them is different, and if you don't know that, you can get really hurt. So we'll, we'll cover more of that. Well, I've just about uh, gone over my time here, so I want to thank you for being with us here tonight, um, completing this. Let me pray for us as we go. Lord, I thank you that you are the God of peace. So I just speak peace over everyone that's joining us or listening here through live stream, that the peace of God that passes our understanding would be ours, that the, the shalom, grace of God, we, we pray that covering over us and our families, our loved ones, as we are equipped, we bind any spirits of witchcraft, curses, vexes, hexes, any violence, death, murder, sickness, torment, that none of this virus or anything else is able to operate. We have authority over that. Our houses are covered under the Psalm 91 promise of God. Those words are true. They will be true from now until forever. They are promises to those who walk under the blood covering. We declare that Revelation 12 promise that we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. And God, we thank you that you said in Luke 10, you have given us full power over all the enemy. We will crush snakes and scorpions of him under our feet. So I thank you, Lord, for that authority, for that blessing, for that assurance of who we are in Christ and who you are in us. So Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would release that shalom of peace, that we have that perfect assurance that our homes and our families and our loved ones are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Thank you all.